Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. On the news today, I don't know that we've ever really done Elon Musk on the news. And there's a way in which among industry titans in the tech world, he's kind of the guy who doesn't really stay in his lane and bleeds out into culture. There are even writers for the Iron Man franchise who say that Elon Musk is to some degree an inspiration for the way Tony Stark (laughs) I know, I know, the way Tony Stark is characterized and drawn, and obviously posted Saturday Night Live, and now he may be dragging Twitter down under the waves with him for reasons unknown. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about Amsterdam. David O. Russell is certainly one of the kind of hot, revered indie directors, despite the fact that he seems to have a fairly toxic personality. Uh, This is a star-studded, noir, knockabout comedy It's like dark and screwball all at once. Anyway, that's all coming up after the news. We're opening with that song because we are going to be talking about Twitter. You see what we did there, actually. It was Jonathan McPants who did that. It's the news. A little bit later in the news, we're going to be talking about Amsterdam, a star-studded David O. Russell vehicle that may actually be somewhat disappointing, but we'll talk about that when it's time. But meanwhile, yes... This massive social media engine, something that is used by heads of state and CEOs and journalists and other kinds of thought leaders, something that actually I think has some real world applications in terms of emergency alerts and stuff like that. Things that there are actually now, you know, agencies that do important things in the world to save people and stuff that use Twitter in various ways. It's one bad string of code away from just crashing into the ocean. And and the biggest problem facing Twitter right now, I think, might be that if something like that happened, they no longer have the people there who can fix it. So, But there's a lot of other things going on with the culture uh, of Twitter. There's reasons why people are jumping uh, at the offer of severance. Uh, there are reasons why people are jumping at the offer, offer of severance as opposed to doing hardcore Twitter 2.0. That is a reference to the way Elon Musk thinks that he is going to make people work there. It may also be a reference to the kind of content that winds up under some kind of subscription cap or something uh, because he he seems like he might actually take at least some of Twitter in that direction as well. So here to talk about all these things is the nose. And the nose today is Raquel Benedict. She is the most dangerous woman in speculative. I mean, in fact, we could just take speculative fiction off the table. Raquel Benedict (laughs) is the most dangerous woman, uh, and she hosts the Right Good podcast. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D. James Hanley is the founder of Sydney Studio at Trinity College. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, a writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean, and I'll spell that one too, S-H-A-W-N. I just want to make sure everybody finds these things. Uh, We want want people's podcasts found. Uh, So the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. So, So, yes, it's sort of 
Raquel, it's sort of hard to know where to start the conversation. This is like a really big thing. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, Twitter is like a really big thing. We were uh, all emailing earlier today, and I think you brought up, or maybe Sean brought up, you know, yeah, there was like, you know, MySpace and LiveJournal and stuff. stuff, But those were... Those weren't used by heads of state and CEOs. <laughs> yeah, they were a little silly. Yeah. They were for classmates and 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 things like that. It, Twitter was a unique place where you could where you could call a senator or a governor a poophead and they'd probably read it. Well, or their That's staff. Pretty special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or their staff. Uh, I don't count on that. But yeah, I I don't know just in a way, I, I kind of want to know from you guys where you want to – I have some thoughts about where to start this conversation. Maybe the first thing to say is how real do reports of its demise seem to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's tough because right now it's chugging along, but we've got the World Cup coming up, which means there's going to be crazy high use, which means there's a lot higher, more stress put on the system, a lot higher chance of things break breaking down and since so many of the people who knew how to keep the site running are just are gone they either got laid off or they quit because they thought you know what i i'm hireable somewhere else and i'm not going to put up with this boss who's a total jerk i'm out i i think it remains to be seen this weekend uh, as to as to how well it goes will will it be gone forever i doubt it but i i think we'll see a lot of breakdowns and maybe see it getting resold and changed into something a lot a lot more like a graveyard, like something functional, I guess, that still exists, but not not what it is now. Yeah. I mean, people often leave in these situations partly because the people that they liked and trusted have already left. I mean, there's sort of a ripple effect. Yeah. There's a bullet effect here. Uh, and, and also they leave because whatever vision they thought they were signing up for is just no longer visible. So I don't know, Sean, what are your – do you have worries about – you use Twitter a lot. I use Twitter a lot. Raquel uses Twitter a lot. I think James is probably smart enough to have stayed away from it for the most part. But um, what are your concerns right now? What are you thinking about, Sean? Uh, I'm thinking about – like Raquel said, not being able to call senators uh, poop heads, um, <laughs> but I think I think it's a it's a I think Twitter has become such a resource like um, beyond any other social media platform that like it, it is kind of worrisome that it, it would go away because it's like I use Twitter for so many different things and there is no replacing any of those things without like building a replacement Twitter in, in a sense in essence I mean. Um, like I would need to like in order to get the same thing I get from Twitter, I would need to like access twelve different websites and keep up with people. Like there's people I would never know where to find again if they if they started uh, if we started a new um, platform. And it's also like, I feel like one of the things that really upset me about this happening is that it feels like deliberate, like like the sort of like Elon Musk being the front facing uh, part of this where he's just seems to just be like some sort of bumbling idiot who's destroying this like just because he doesn't know what he's doing i think is hiding the fact that like there i don't want to say it's a conspiracy or whatever but it seems like there's like it's an intentional thing to destroy something that's been being so useful for people like journalists like whoever who can use this for for good or just like for the people and like they want to control something like that and uh i don't know it's worrisome it's also like i just like to just re uh look at memes all day you know? <laughs> well, you know, also, also, Sean, there's a way I was listening to Jeff Galloway talk about this on The Pivot uh, that, you know, what what Musk did in terms of the money, the money's $44 billion. Galloway was saying that's like he bought 
the Lakers and, and the Yankees and all of the premier uh, soccer or football teams uh, and like you know nine other major sports franchises and then every time you went to a game on the jumbotron it said Elon Musk is an idiot he's a jerk we hate him you know <laughs> like he spent 44 billion dollars to acquire a, a machine that runs on user-generated content where all day long just people are, are you know, they're just S-posting him, you know, all day long. And to your point, Sean, it's kind of hard to understand why a person would do that. I mean, nobody's enough like Elon Musk, I think, for us to be able to figure that out, though. I think um, I remember a couple months ago I was on here and I recommended um, in the recommendations uh, section um this video called line goes up and it was about how like NFTs are BS. Um, and one of the things they talked about in that video is that like a lot of times spent, they spend this money and it's like just a way to control whatever, you know what I mean? It's, it's just like, like I think these guys like, like, like Musk, like doesn't care about Twitter. Like he like he posts on Twitter, but he doesn't care about Twitter. But they they see these things as something that could be used for something else. Like it, they got all this data that they generate from us, and they can now turn it into something else. And I think that's what it is. I don't think, like I, I can't think. I can't I can't see how he wouldn't see this going this way by behaving in this way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All right. So. Oh, James, I can't wait. Um, so, and there, we should say something about <laughs> Musk too, which is that you know he has not ever been willing to stay in the lane of just sort of incredibly successful, unbelievably wealthy tech entrepreneur. He wants to be in the culture all the time. He hosted Saturday Night Live. Uh, I'm sure he fosters all these comparisons that are made between him and Tony Stark. Comparisons that I find rather strained, but they're made all the time. Uh, and I don't know. I mean. Now we really are obliged, James, to wonder who is this person and why is he doing what he's doing? And you're often very good at that. Well, I think that he's he's an egocentric jerk, actually, in the way that he's behaving now. But I think that he's behaving that way with his car company as well and self-driving cars and so many other things. And in a way, I see it as a sort of central problem of where capitalism has come to especially in terms of communication. I mean, if you think um, of, of about uh, something that began to happen with the, the FCC and Ajit Pai and the whole sort of really taking hands off and saying that electronic communications and computer systems and all of those things were not the purview of the FCC. But the problem is when certain means of communication become something that is central to the dialogue that takes place in a democracy. And like it or not, Twitter has become that. And I think that that is something that is really now totally a victim of somebody's ego and uh, somebody who doesn't respect the people who work for it and who've tried to make it work. And it really means that all those people who relied on the work of those people who knew how it worked is all thrown in the trash can. And I think, frankly, I think it looks to me technically as though it's, Twitter is going to be history as it was because there simply aren't the people who understand the algorithms that have been written to manage it. And it's something that now people are realizing how valuable it is, but you have to think about how these things are managed. Like if you're going to have a company like Apple, for example, which has managed to maintain its position uh, in the industry, largely through maintaining that it, it, it 
it believes in absolute privacy and meaning that information isn't shared. This has impacted Google and made Google's profitability uh, go south. I mean, it's really something that we rely on all of these systems without really thinking, do they need to be in the hands of one person or do they need to be in the hands purely of a profit-making corporation? These things have become really important to a lot of people. And we don't have the conversation about how that could be restructured in a way that was beneficial to more people and not just billionaires. Although we may start to find out a little bit more what that's going to be like if people do, in fact, migrate onto Mastodon, which is one of the probably the most frequently cited new choice. Uh, Mastodon lives on something called the well, it's often called the Fediverse, uh, but this is like a multi-server system where the servers are controlled by different parties, uh, and, and they have different rules too. So one of your interactions with Mastodon might be radically different uh, from another one based on which server you're actually interacting with. Uh, this is going to be decentralization on steroids, uh, if in fact that's the direction that we go in. But you know, Raquel, I, and I think in particular because you know I follow you on Twitter, you're often using Twitter. To try to debate too often, <laughs> to, well, to, to try to debate or maybe adjudicate certain things going on within the sci-fi and fantasy world, or the world of writers there, and how people are talked about and how are tre- how they're treated, and it seems like you know the first paradox here is that Musk came in with this stated goal of more freedom of expression, less content moderation, open the whole thing up. And it doesn't really feel that way, does it? It feels as though the minute he got in there, he suddenly thought about 80 different things he didn't want people doing on Twitter. Right. I mean, the minute he got on there, everybody started dunking on him and he realized, oh, free speech means people can make fun of me. I don't like that. (laughs) But, but, but I, yeah. I do think that a lot of the that uh, talk about free speech was kind of dishonest and disingenuous. We've seen for the past few years the far right talking about, oh, we love free speech. We just want to value free speech, but they only really value right wing free speech and are perfectly happy to like throw Molotov cocktails at a coffee shop that's holding a drag queen event or something like that. You know, free speech for me, but not for you. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, James. No, well, I mean, I think that that's that problem is that it becomes a sort of private universe and and especially in a situation where a person with the resources to take over a system that many people rely on and then can skew it in a particular direction or to completely destroy it. It it really means that people like us who have uh, have an important stake in this kind of communication and i say that even though i i don't i'm not on twitter but i see its importance and i think that without that without our voices being able to be heard it's an incredibly skewed universe which means that we will always favor f- firestorms and threatening threats coming from people who want to destroy stuff and people who want to uh, who who are really interested in expressing their own egos all the worst possible sides of 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 human catastrophe can be put into that and we don't seem to have that conversation about where the power lies because that's what ultimately to me what it's about you know, and speaking of power, um, Sean, I mean, one, one of the major uses of Twitter, it's probably the way that I use Twitter more than any other way. If you think of something funny, you, you put it up there. If you can get it down to 280 characters, uh, you put the funny thing up there. 
But that brings up the whole question of humor and comedy and their relation, the, the relationship of those things to power. You know, I mean, it, it goes back at minimum to Lear and his fool, right? Who the fool's the only one who really kind of tell the truth around uh, around Lear. And and Musk, in this very kind of Michael Scott like pathetic way, is kind of you know tried to sign on to the world of comedy. You know, he shows up uh, to to take the reins of Twitter and he is like lugging this big heavy actual sink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> into the, you know, uh, into the headquarters. And he, it's a dad joke. He says, let this sink in. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, you use Twitter for comedy, too. And I'm just sort of thinking about that. Comedy is, you know, one of the most anarchic forms of expression. And it's been great to have Twitter, not just to call a senator a poop face, but maybe to say something really damagingly funny about <laughs> some powerful person. And And I'm just you know, this seems to be the thing that he's going to crack down on first rather than last. I mean, it has been the thing he cracked down on first, uh, which is funny because I remember like when he first like finalized the purchase, he was like, comedy is legal again on Twitter. And then everyone started uh, doing the thing where they would like change their Twitter name. Everyone who was like verified would change their name to Elon Musk and then tweet something ridiculous from like like under now assuming Elon Musk's persona and then he immediately started banning those accounts. It's like, well, what happened to comedy being legal? Like that was immediately like stopped. I think um, it's like what James was saying. It's like, we're all saying it's like people like this. I can't understand how you couldn't just be satisfied with being one of the richest person on the planet. Like by far the richest person on the planet. I don't don't know how that's not enough. You got to, you have to also be funny and cool and like in Marvel movies, like just, just just take your riches and go. Why can't we just have this? Can we just have Twitter? Can we just like make jokes all day? I don't get it. I can answer that. I mean, look, we, we've just been through an election season where you look around and there are an awful lot of multimillionaires and billionaires who who are in the same position that you just described and who want to be like governors of states. Being a governor of a state is a terrible job. You know, like people just like yell at you all the time and they're always mad and you really are expected to run things and you don't necessarily have the resources that you have in the private sector. And there are a lot of people you can't fire the way you can fire everybody on Twitter. You know, and yet they want to do it anyway because they're addressing these massive psychological deficits. And and as Bill exactly. Curry as Bill Curry used to say, what they don't understand is politics is the worst place to go and try to address a massive psychological deficit. But you you get the feeling that Musk there's some like uncompleted part of Musk. And, you know, we know he's now kind of self-identified as also as being somewhere on the autism spectrum. I think he uses the term Alzheimer's, I mean, Alzheimer's Asperger's. Uh, and, uh, and I, you know, I don't know how that factors in, where that is there. But, you know, Raquel, it's also, I think most of us use Twitter a lot. It's kind of like we learn to play a certain kind of musical instrument. Like we learn to play the saxophone, you know, and now we're thinking, Oh, they're going to take the saxophone away. And even if I migrate someplace else, it won't be a saxophone anymore, right? I'm going to, I mean, and when you think yeah. of the amount of habit we've built up from the time we get up in the morning to the time we go to, uh, to bed at night, where there's a little tiny part of us going, should I tweet that? <laughs> Have I tweeted right. enough today? I don't know. Talk about how your own relationship with that uh, has, has built up over time. I mean, uh, one thing that's really unique about Twitter that's different from the other uh, the other social networks, the other big forms of social media, is that it's not visual. It's completely text-based, and it really rewards being straight to the point. And when you think about – I'm looking at where I might migrate to after this. 
I don't think any other platform does that. Most of the other platforms are very visually inclined, Instagram or TikTok. So imagine like a veteran journalist in his 50s trying to do a TikTok dance to try to communicate some kind of complex international story. Like it's just not suited for that. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to see for- Wolf Blitzer twerking? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah, I, I, so... So for those of us who did manage to use Twitter for all its flaws, because there is a, a very effective way of communicating on there, I don't know how to do a dance to the Oh No 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 song. I don't know how to give myself the Instagram face and somehow m- use that to compel people to read what I write. <laughs> well, that's you're making like, a really most important journalists point. Journalists yeah. and, and writers are not photogenic. I'm sorry. We need a space for people who aren't hot. Right. I mean, there, there is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also the, maybe the more important point, the one that you're making is this is a writer's medium, you know, and the, among the people who really like it a lot are writers. I'm not saying, oh, like Joyce Carol Oates. She really likes tweeting. My <laughs> God, she's amazing. <laughs> and and Her Mar- mind is Margaret, incredible. Margaret Atwood tweets, you know, I mean, the, this is a place where, yeah, your ability to put a string of words together is like really, really super important. It's probably it's not fiscally rewarded at all, at least not directly. But it no. might you might be more rewarded and reinforced for writing a couple of good sentences on Twitter than you do in the rest of your career. Yeah, people, I've I've had a lot of things happen because of tweets. I've had major career changes for good or for ill because of tweets or someone liked a very funny tweet that I that I wrote and I ended up writing an article for for his ma- new magazine like it's really wild that that can happen just on the space of a 20 280 character booger joke or something it's really really unusual <laughs> I don't know where else you can do that Raquel, one of the amazing things about that is that when you think about it and how significant this is for you and how important, it's in a it's in a universe where a crazy billionaire can cut you off from that just like that. Yeah, for ego, and I don't know. For ego, I don't, yes. I don't know if his, I don't know if it's totally ego though, because so much of his stock value, from what I can see, is dependent on hype. Like I, I think, as people are realizing what a doofus he is. People are going to be less interested in investing in his company. So I I do think part of that need this endless drive to be loved and adored might have a financial reward for him and not just an emotional one. Well, I'm I'm not entirely sure of that because basically his his financial success in the market comes from selling cars that cost very little to build that people are willing to pay extra astronomical prices for. And this is something that is entirely separate. This has given him a platform by being able to do this. That's capitalism. But by giving him a platform, I mean, I think of a, a parallel to the, the history of the telephone, the, the plain old voice telephone on somebody's desk and how it started out. I mean, can you imagine that uh, that if telephones had been controlled in the same way, um, that there right. hadn't been some sort of, some sort of uh, system that said, now, wait a minute, what you, you you if you're going to be AT and T and the Bell system, if you want to be able to sell telephones everywhere, 
that means that you have to also provide phones for everyone. That doesn't mean that you you can ignore people who can't afford the high price of a phone. You and so the FCC at that time required that they provide service that that, that virtually everybody could afford. And so they ended up with a universal system, and that was a different kind of expression of power. They were limited to a to even to a profit margin of 10, 12 percent. And they couldn't do anything else. But for that, they got a monopoly. But people really knew that this was a balance of power, if you like. We don't have that. You don't no. have that for what you need to say. Right. So, I mean, the point you're making, I think, James, too, is and it's it's prevalent all through the social media part of the tech sector is whatever else happens, don't get regulated. You know, I mean, whether it's Zuckerberg or or. Um, or Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey before him or any of these people, the number one thing is please don't get regulated. Um, and, and so that, they've kind of made that job one. Guess, guess why? Guess why? I mean, that's that's it's about it's about the money and the ego and the control. Mm -hmm. They don't want the regulation because the regulation would represent a voice of people who don't have a voice right now. And I think that's one alternative. I think there are others, but it's one alternative. So, Sean, final thought for this segment. I mean, you could be whatever you want it to be. I mean, is there any part of you that thinks, eh, maybe I'll, I'll do like my own work that I get paid for more if there's no Twitter? I mean, absolutely. You know that, um, since it's on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know that, um, that Allen Ginsberg quote where like I saw the greatest minds of my generation mm -hmm. uh, destroyed by madness? Like, that's what Twitter is, honestly. Like, my, my brain is destroyed. Like, I think about, like, how many hours I could have spent working on this novel I've been trying to, like, write for years. How many more articles, how many more podcast episodes I could have thought of. How many millions of other things. And still, even with, like, those achievements, like, in the balance, it's still a little heartbreaking that Twitter is going to be gone. Like, if it, if it really is going to be gone. Like, it's like, like, I could have been doing something important or worthwhile but it was more fun to make fun of elon musk's weird head <laughs> <laughs> well you know it has been fun the thing that we often lost track of there were two things one of them is to james's point well it was like we were at six flags and we didn't understand there was a big red switch on the wall that could be thrown at any moment including when we're at the top of a roller coaster you know and and the other part of it is it's Six Flags where we actually have to build and run all the rides, essentially. I mean, you know, we've been basically creating all this content all this time. There's nobody at Twitter writing funny stuff that I know of anyway. <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's a weird, weird moment. All right. We have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Amsterdam and David O. Russell. God help us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Doucement, doucement, tu dis que tu m'aimes. Doucement, doucement, je te dis de même. All right, a song, a song from Amsterdam. Amsterdam's new movie by David O. Russell, if that name does not ring a bell. Things Spanking the Monkey, Flirting with Disaster, Three Kings, I Heart Huckabees, The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle. The perhaps rather forgettable Joy. And then it's actually really been a long time since he released. That was 2015 for Joy. Uh, it's been a long time since he really released anything. Now he's released Amsterdam. It is sort of a screwball comedy that's incredibly dark and noir and about the people in the back room of something who are all wearing tuxedos and are all basically Elon Musk, except that they control other businesses because it's right after World War One and it's 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 about race in a very very um, urgent way, uh, and it also stars Christian Bale, Mar- Margot Robbie, and John David Washington as the sort of trio of buddies who emerge from World War One with this pact, as they say, that they're going to stick by one another uh, in every through thick and through thin. Uh, and then, wow, this incredible supporting cast: uh, Anya Joy, Ta- Anya Taylor Joy, Chris Rock. Mike Myers, Taylor Swift, Timothy, Timothy Oliphant, Zoe, uh, Zoe Saldana, R- uh, Rami Malek, and Robert De Niro, who is actually starting to work with David O. Russell a lot these days. And, well, I don't know. Well, let's get to the panel here. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, just as the Twitter story was very hard to describe, James, Amsterdam is very hard to describe, partly because it's one of these movies that doesn't really pick a lane. It just like swerves around in all kinds of, of different lanes. But I don't know if you were trying, I, I'm, I'm going to do a spoiler and say, nobody on this panel likes this movie very much. If anybody's going <laughs> to, if anybody's going to defend it, I'm going to have to try to defend it. But so I think each of you should just talk about why you don't like this movie very much. And James, you get to go first. Well, I did want to like it, I have to say, uh, because I thought that, uh, you know, I, I think David O. Russell is a smart guy, but he trips himself up all the time. Um, but I thought that this sounded like it would be interesting, but it comes off really as being a series of vignettes, a kind of like thea- very theatrical sort of uh, going from one vignette to another, where the story becomes very hard to follow. There's the implication that it's based on something that really happened, which actually is possible. But there's the, from the research I was able to do, it wasn't clear exactly how that connected to the film itself. 
And I found myself sort of feeling that we were going down a rabbit hole, but with these incredibly beautiful actors and the performances. And also it turns out that most of them were working for scale, although I think uh, I, I think that um, Christian Bale's scale is pretty high. But um, it, 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 by the end of the movie, I found myself sort of wanting to find the thread uh, which had completely gone and it reminded me really to go back to I Heart Huckabees and I was watching that actually. And then I watched the um, the, the the YouTube thing of David O. Russell going after uh, Lily Tomlin. And I just think that we're dealing here actually, unfortunately, with a very talented director who's actually also got a real ego problem and who really doesn't. Who, who who can't get past his sense of expressing himself in some sort of unique way in making the movie. And, you and know, James, end, James I, I feel like I, you're describing somebody we just talked about. I can't think who that would be, but... I, I well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just feel we're surrounded with so many people like this now and that, that the, the, the media universe in many ways supports that. I mean, the people at the whole Murdoch universe as revolves around creating uh, a stir around personalities like that and um it instead of rewarding a sort of you know I, I, I dare dare i say a sort of humility of a person who's intellectually capable of creating a good story that actually goes after something really important and actually makes an important statement i mean actually that whole period about the rise of the nazis and the 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 consequences of world war 1 and the support of the nazis in the united states and the big rallies all of those things which sort of flirted around in the flitted around in the background of this film that were never really addressed. It just annoys me that at a time when we need to really talk about these things, why can't an intelligent person do that without tripping over his own head? Right. I have a sort of single theory about all this, but I'll save it for a little bit because I want the rest of the panel to talk. So, so Sean, what didn't you like about this movie? <laughs> Sean got um, Sean got mad at me because I I sort of I said you know in terms of art direction and the look of it and the feel and the way the characters are written and the way they talk and the way that they don't fully inhabit dramatically the roles and moments that they're in it kind of is like sort of Coen Brothers you know Hudsucker proxy type thing and and certainly the the dominant art direction is very Wes Anderson there's even this kind of teal colored room that I think is Rami Malek's office that they go into this like they just took over one of Wes's sets or something. But you got mad at me for even invoking Cone Brothers and Wes Anderson in connection with this. I'm still mad at you doing it now. It's, it's so <laughs> upsetting because, like, you know what's funny about, like, the Wes Anderson connection? I think the Grand Budapest Hotel is exactly what this movie wants to be mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. does it 1,000 times better. 1,000. Like, yeah. it's like, it's about, like, the rise of fascism in the early 20th century where it's a screwball comedy, but there's a lot of violence happening and there's, like, there's, there's, like, like social issues being discussed while on the surface it's just a movie about, like, rich people and, and like, someone who's not rich entering that world and all that stuff is there and it's so much better because it actually is well-written and it knows, like, they had, it has a, a perspective this movie has no perspective it's trying to be about race it's trying to be about uh classism it's trying to be but it, it never picks a lane and it's like it's it's so funny uh james says that uh same said earlier that this was, movie was hard to follow and it's like it's, it's incredible that this movie is hard to follow considering the fact that every character is constantly telling the other characters what just happened in the movie exactly like, that's, 
They're just talking at each other the entire. They're just saying, "Remember when we were in Amsterdam and we did this <laughs> thing, and then we'll flash back to it, and, then, and when we when we flash back to Amsterdam, we'll continue just talking at each other." I am a black man who is in the military. You are a white man who will be our commander. <laughs> this will be a good union. Let's make. They literally said, "Let's make a pact." Right after meeting thirty seconds before. This is this movie is garbage. I don't understand what what were we doing here. The writing is so bad, and there's there's some good elements that could work, like. This movie is incredible to me. Like, did anyone give a good performance in this movie? Anyone? There's so many great actors. No one is like no one's remarkable, and these are some of the best actors that we have working today. I don't I get mean, it. There are there are people who are in this movie who are really good in the little moments that they have, which are completely disconnected to anything else in the movie. I mean, there's one moment where Chris Rock just suddenly says, "You know." My grandfather shot somebody in the face uh, one time, and then he got shot in the face. But it all worked out. But but this is apropos of nothing. Uh, and and, right. and Mike Myers is doing this tremendous pro- – like, I want to see the movie. I want to see the Wes Anderson Grand Budapest Hotel movie that this Mike Myers character is in. Just move him untouched into something where he actually connects to the plot in some way. Anyway, Raquel, I, I said I'd let the panel talk, and here I am talking. So you have the floor. I, yeah, I, 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 I was watching this and I feel I felt like I was watching a very expensive high school play or something where you've got like <laughs> act, actors who are very enthusiastic, but they with limited life experience. So they can't quite carry any of this and they're saying the right words and they everybody looks great, but it's not connecting. And I and I think what struck me is that I never felt the weight of the First World War in this like any art from that period any any music you get this real sense of the massive massive weight of trauma that the great war had on this entire generation this lost generation and i never felt that on any of the characters at any moment they're just like yeah the war was tough but anyway let's let's have some fun and and even even when these world war 1 veterans or people who lost someone in that were having a good time in the roaring 20s there was this sense of sadness or desperation or despair to it because it, it wasn't necessarily let's just have fun now but it was like we there's this howling grief in the back of my head and i need to drink some more champagne Campaign to make it quiet for a little while, <laughs> and I never ever felt that while watching this movie. All right, let's hear a little bit of the movie. Uh, you're going to hear. Uh, I'm telling you, it's a star-studded cl- cast. You're going to hear uh, Michael Shannon as Henry Norcross, a kind of one of two people who have kind of double agent roles. I'm not. I'm not going to spoil any. I won't spoil the movie, but I can't really spoil the movie by telling you stuff like that. John David Washington is uh, Harold Woodman. Christian Bale is Bert Berenson. Margot Robbie is Valerie Vose, and Mike Myers as Paul Canterbury. How do you do? We've been friends of Valerie's family through international business for many years. We've kept her safe on her adventure, and in return, she's helped serve the good of the world. How did she do that exactly? By attending various dinners and functions and telling us what she's learned about banks and troop movements, so on and so forth. Uh They're spies. (laughs) No, no, sir. He uh, works for a glass company, and I work for the Department of the Treasury. They're old friends. They've helped me out, and I've helped them out. Now I think they'll help you out. So, uh, you know, we're happy to pay for the faces, uh, whatever cosmetic healing you might need. Uh, top shelf, nothing but the best. Yes, yes. As well as a good life here in Amsterdam where you deserve a rest and some freedom after what you've been through. We'll come a call in sometime in the future when we need you good people to help us out. Yes. Because there will come a time 
to say enough to these madmen who create this war we cannot make any sense of. Well, how could this monstrosity repeat itself? It's supposed to be the war to end our wars. Right. Because the dream repeats itself since it forgets itself. That's why it repeats itself. This is a good part, but the bad part will come again one day. But for now, this is the good part in Amsterdam. You know, like that little part that uh, Margaret, Margot Robbie says at the end there, that's actually kind of a nifty little piece of writing. But James, I actually, my whole theory about this, and Sean, I think, kind of was hinting at it or maybe even saying it in his comments, is I think the problem with this movie is mainly expressed in the line of the credits written by David O. Russell. You know, this is, a, this is something that needed collaborators Maybe it needed to yes. be given to Tom Stoppard or or John Milius. He's probably dead or something. But, you know, one of these sort of like estimable rewrite people, you know, just say, look, make this thing make sense. Um, you know, take the script and actually get it to a point where one line le- leads to the next line, which is the problem here right I, now. Go ahead. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that this is very often a problem with um, – with 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 sort of iconoclastic directors or people people who are really unwilling to have that kind of input of other writers or somebody i mean it seems to me that nobody actually had a concept except maybe in david o russell said he had a sort of idea of what he was going to do but you know we were talking about how the acting is sort of like doesn't kind of fit together and it has this feeling that maybe they showed up for a couple of days in the studio, shot their scenes, and then they, they went away, and then somebody put them all together, and then David Russell sort of, you know, put it together in the way that he wanted. And there was a lack of a sense of a concept, a, a, an intellectual trajectory for the movie as to what you were trying to do, because it wasn't just a satire. It wasn't something, I mean, I think you can do throwaway satire, certainly about this subject, you could do it, but this didn't do it. I mean, the, the Cohen, we were talking about the Cohen brothers. I mean, the Cohen brothers, you always have a sense of the actual trajectory of what they're thinking and what they're trying to get across. And the actors are really bought into that. And the, there's a sense of satisfaction, uh, I find watching those films and feeling that, okay, you're talking and I'm listening and I'm paying attention to what you're trying to get across. And David O. Russell seems to be sort of like about the artifact, the artifact itself, without that sense of being able to understand that the audience wants to be taken somewhere seriously with this. And you've got good actors who could do that, but this, the 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 script just was 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 empty, really completely empty. And I can't think that really. I mean, it's it's it comes out from a major studio, uh, but significantly the actors mostly worked for scale. Um, it's like all those actors really wanted to work with somebody like David O. Russell and his personality, his reputation. But you wonder what it is that attracts them to that when he doesn't really have an idea here. And it and if you look at his other films, that's often the case. It really is not always something that actually leads you somewhere satisfying that you've ex- absorbed an idea that he wanted to express. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I could, there are movies of his that I could defend, but maybe in my endorsements. Just really quickly here, Sean, is there any chance that this movie 
I think the Ringerverse has something called the Rewatchables or something, you know. And I'm I'm wondering whether five years from now we could rewatch this movie and think, okay, it's not going to make any sense and it's going to be kind of offensively stupid about certain things. But let's just sort of dig Christian Bale's performance because it's usually just leaving it all on the field. I mean, it's like he just uses up his body and his voice and everything to get this weird, schlubby, mutilated character uh, to make it come to life. I don't know. Is it a possibility that this thing could be just, you know, sitting on a shelf aging for a while and maybe be less toxic? No. Uh, <laughs> okay, we'll go to a break now. <laughs> no, I just feel, I just feel, um, there, there are interesting elements, like you said, like Mike Myers is like doing the accent and everything, but it's like you know what, where that was done much better in Inglorious Bastards. You know, mm-hmm. there's like every every performance or every moment that you could say like, oh, I like this part of it. You could see that same actor or that same thing in a much better movie. So this, the sum total of this movie is like your summary is, oh, I saw this done better elsewhere. Like Raquel was talking about, um, you know how like none of the the impact of the war really hits. It's because like the, the writing is so. There's no drama to the story. You know, like, in, like like one of the things about I love about Wes Anderson's movie. People you know criticize him for being like uh, twee or you know too cutesy or whatever. He he bakes real drama into his storytelling, so like it, it hits. Like Grand Budapest Hotel is one of the silliest movies he's ever made, but he has those moments like Zero telling his story to um, Monsieur Gustav about his his history as um as a as a, as a uh, uh, prisoner not prisoner of war but um um. Uh, whatever he was, yeah. he was in a war, and yeah. then like those, those moments on the train, like the, yeah. so the drama really hit. So then the com- like the the comedy is born out of the drama. This movie is just trying to like this is this scene. I'm gonna spoil a scene. At the, I'm not gonna really spoil it, but there's a scene where someone gets shot in the face, and it's supposed to play for a laugh. And I don't even like it doesn't even make any sense because they said like we just ruined the case, and it's like but the person who got shot in the face didn't even die. So how would it have, like what are you talking? About? It's so <laughs> stupid. It's it, like. It doesn't. It's just dumb. It's, there's no reappraising this. I listen to the rewatchables. I like it. Even Bill Simmons, who has some of the worst tastes, couldn't redeem this movie. All right, we got to go to a break here. Before we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about things that we actually like, which will be a first for today's episode. All right, uh, let's take that break. All right, really quickly here, uh, time to say some thank yous. One of them is to our technical producer today. It's the big boss, the big kid. It's Katie Talarski, who is something of storytelling and radio and everything. Uh, that's her title, actually. Under the is the sort of the Twitter 2.0 title. Um, this is the hardcore WNPR title. Uh, all right, and uh, the producer of this episode is uh, Jonathan McPants. As always, uh, time for our panel to maybe make some recommendations to you, Raquel. Why don't you get us started? This is Raquel Benedict. Well, I, I will recommend a novel. It was written in the 1970s, but it feels eerily, eerily, eerily relevant today. It's by uh, Giorgio de Maria, and it's called The 20 Days of Turin. And it basically predicted how social media would drive everybody insane. It's really good. All right. Um, <laughs> that was very succinct. Uh, uh, and James Hanley, what are you going to recommend to us? Well, um, I'm a great fan of um, Amazing Aki uh, and Chantal, the baker who bakes uh, Aki pastries and many other good things, uh, who's been at markets in the past. She is about to, or I think it's just opening a shop called the Lickle, that's spelled L-I-K-K-L-E, 
patty shop at uh, 80 Paquanic Avenue in Windsor. Um, and she has uh, uh, her Aki patties and various other pastries are just amazing. And I'm really excited that she's doing this and highly recommend a visit there. And also just related, um, the Coventry Market has finally moved back into the high school, oh, good. Uh, Coventry High School. And it's now operating every Sunday and every Sunday morning, I think from 10 to 12 now, I think. Uh, and it's great to see all the merchants there and go and be able to buy fresh fruit and uh, and, and vegetables. Highly recommended also. All right. Uh, thanks for both of those. And uh, how about you, Sean? I have two things. Well, kind of three I would like to recommend. Uh, first would be uh, it's a novelette. Uh, you can find online at Uncanny Magazine called Colors of the Immortal Palette by Caroline Yoakum. It's an amazing, uh, you know, short story or long story, I guess, uh, about um, uh, vampire painter. It's fascinating. One of the best things I've ever read all year. And also, I'd like to recommend a comic mini series by uh, the great comic book writer Jonathan Hickman. Uh, it's a twin series. Uh, one is called House of X, and the other is called uh, Powers of Ten, but it's powers of x like you know but um it's about the x-men and it's like a reimagining of like the x-men uh like when they have they have their, their own island and it's just i don't know it's amazing it's just it's really good and it, it just it re jonathan hickman's a great writer who's like worked on every great team comic he's done a great avengers run he's done a great fantastic four run and now he finally did an x-men run it's amazing so this is available where comic books are sold wherever comic books are sold okay and, and that's it for you I just want to make sure you have something else you were. So um, I did this thing that I haven't done for a really, 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 well, for almost three years, actually, which is I went to New York uh, and I went to a play uh, in my N95 mask. Uh, and the play was uh, Sir Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt. And it's it sort of um, something that's maybe worth talking about in the context that we've been talking today because it really does deal uh, with, I mean, you know, uh, Sean was talking, I think, very appropriately about uh, in Grand Budapest Hotel, there are these moments where these people who are pretty clearly Nazis, they don't quite have swastikas, they have like these weird lightning bolty things, though, uh, get on a train and these very tense moments ensue. And, and bad things can happen, and we're aware of that. Well, Leopoldstadt, uh, or Leopoldstadt, this is um, set uh, in Vienna. Uh, it's uh, Stoppard's first and probably only fully or kind of uh, autobiographical work. Uh, it is about a kind of a blended but mostly Jewish family. Uh, it starts in 1899, and every, you know, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes, it, it goes ahead about 10, 15, 20 years, uh, ending in 1955. Uh, it's, among other things, about Stoppard's own discovery that he was Jewish, which he had not known. Uh, and But it's also about so much more. There's a scene that takes place. It's all in one apartment, uh, but the different things are happening. One of the things that happens is Kristall knocked, and it is just, even though very little is shown to you, unbelievably harrowing. It is not a perfect play. Um, it is um, hampered a little bit by the size of the cast and the fact that the play actually, the curtain goes up on, I think, 14 people. And, you know, in a play, you're trying to figure out who everybody is. And it's hard to figure out who 14 people are, including lots of them are little kids uh, who are going to age through the play. But so, I don't know. Dramaturgically, I have a little bit of a problem with that. But, um Anyway, if you want to uh, give yourself, I mean, I don't know. I feel like everything Stoppard writes, you kind of have to see. But um, anyway, let's label Stott. I'm sure it's going to win some awards and stuff like that. And it was very exciting to see it. But 
you can't really go by me because I haven't sat in the audience of a play for two and a half to three years. So I may have been just really excited to be anywhere. Uh, but uh, it certainly feeds into the conversation we've been having here. So thanks to our panel. Raquel Benedict is the most dangerous woman ever anywhere uh, and <laughs> hosts the Right Good podcast. James Hanley, co-founder of Sydney Studio at Trinity College. Sean Murray, stand-up comedian and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Thanks to all three of you, to Katie and to Pants, and thanks to you for listening. Getting on new Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.